When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 96, March Madness. Last episode, we talked all about how Llewellyn tried to engage Henry III in a peace deal that would finally acknowledge his position as supreme overlord of the native Wales as prince and lord of Snowdon. In the autumn of 1262, after two years of relative peace, the true deal expired, and Henry remained unwilling to negotiate with Llewellyn. As Llewellyn once again turned to aggression, we have to return to why things have been changing in England. After the return to power of the monarch, free of the barons, or at least as free as he could be, Edward was once again free of the influence of others and was able to turn on his erstwhile allies, Roger de Leiborn and Roger de Clifford, uh, in fact, effectively causing them legal issues. The power that Henry wielded did not last very long. His barons already appeared to want their power back, and that was not helped by Llewellyn's growing influence in Wales against the backdrop of marcher lords who wanted their revenge. The death of Robert Richard de Clare, rumored to have died of poisoning at age 39 on the 14th of July, 1262, would definitely have not have helped all that. De Clare had been an opponent of Henry at times, over his handling of matters in Wales, but he was also an ally and an important member of the aristocracy. With the death, his young son Gilbert, who was 19 at the time, should have become the Earl of Gloucester, but instead only to have the king hold up the inheritance. Gilbert was then placed in the wardship of the Earl of Hereford, Humphrey de Bohain. Likely this did little to stop his charge from feeling annoyed, as de Bohan himself would soon join the barons in their second revolt. The marcher lords were angry at the king, and to a degree Edward, who had once again turned on them, and seemingly were turning back towards de Montfort to lead them against the king. But we aren't there quite yet. Llewellyn, in his frequent correspondences with various levels of royal government, began to fully claim his new title, he was both Prince of Wales and Lord of Snowdon. Up until then, he had avoided using Prince of Wales with the English. But now he was bold enough and successful enough that he must have felt like he earned the title. As well, he may have held back initially in order to gain some recognition from Henry before using the title in correspondence. But after more than four years of semi-truce, it was obvious that Henry was never going to come to the table and maybe that was the final straw. Enough couching and enough cowing to the neighbor. He was the Prince of Wales whether the English wanted it or not. At the end of November in 1262, according to the Chronicle of the Princes, the latest conflict started 
in an area where the men of Maithlinith attacked the castle of Kneflis. And according to the Chronicle, the area was controlled by Roger de Mortimer. And it was taken by treachery, and specifically by people as opposed to men. An interesting turn of phrase that might mean nothing, but could also show that both men and women were involved in this taking. The castle was only 20 years old. The steward, Huel Apmirig, and his family were imprisoned, and the castle was then leveled, or at least burned. The victors then called for aid from Llewellyn, who was said to have not been involved, according to the information that we had. If so, he was very involved very quickly thereafter, however, as he was able to send a strong force there before the local lords could, which would cast some doubt on either the English messengers or on Llewellyn, having not been involved in some way behind this revolt. However, it must be noted that Mortimer and de Broes had been leading families in mid the Midwales marches. They were, because of this, a powder keg for a lot of anger in the population due to the general heavy-handedness of these marcher lords, specifically Roger's father, Ralph. And the way that their castles dotted the landscape did nothing to extinguish that resentment. Ralph Mortimer, Roger's father, as we'd mentioned, had been a key member in crushing the Welsh resistance and the Welsh lords in the area, bringing the area under his own control. It was also an area which had come under increasing pressure by the prince, who had captured both Billeth and Gwyrithion over the last few years. Effectively, it had left Kniflis as the last major outpost for Mortimer on the border of Welsh territory in the area. As the news of the disaster spread, men on the English side prepared to go to war. Brian Brampton, an elderly gentleman, made his will on November 27th before the bulk of the forces marched out with Lord Roger Mortimer. Basically, obviously, you could tell that they were afraid of what was going to happen and were taking actions to prepare themselves for the inevitable possibility they could pass away. Llewellyn was not fooling around. He wanted Henry to know under no uncertain terms that he must be forced to the peace table. Llewellyn was prepared to make his subjects pay for it. Certainly amongst the barons, this was a full-blown crisis. When Mortimer and his men reached the castle, the marcher army came face to face with a prepared and dug-in Welsh force, not simply a pack of rebels. This was a bulk of the armies of Llewellyn. They were able to take the castle, but there was nothing left there for them. And in the meantime, they ended up being surrounded in the process. You can imagine the fear that this would have brought on the soldiers of the marcher lords. It was calculated by some English representatives that the Welsh army stood at 300 heavy cavalry and 30,000 foot at this time period. Now those numbers are probably skewed, but you can understand how much terror that would have put in their minds. Against them stood only Roger Mortimer and Humphrey Bohan Jr., son of the Earl of Hereford, the Lord of Brecon, with their hastily raised marcher troops, described in the original sources as the flower of the young men of the marches. These men, of course, would 
end up getting wilted pretty fast as the battle was short and sharp and the marcher forces were rapidly bottled up in the ruins of the unprovisioned walls of the castle. And in the process, this allowed Llewellyn to go around them. With them completely trapped, Llewellyn did not wait to reduce the defiant marchers, but put the castle under siege while he pushed on with a part of his army, taking homage of Roger's vassals in the area and attacking Roger's castles with his siege train. In fact, this was noted as a terror to some of the English lords. All the while, more and more Welsh people in the area of the borders joined the prince in his war. More uprisings were noted by the English as the hopes of Llewellyn offered along with the general chaos and incompetence of the English side must have brought the desire to unite their various loyalties with the prince's cause. Certainly you'd have to feel for them and the way that this idealism and this new idea must have come across to them. On December 24th, 1262, Christmas Eve, King Henry III returned from France, landing at Dover to learn to his distress of Roger's plight, and he immediately apparently began to organize, taking on the relief of the trapped nobility, something which the government of England apparently had failed to do over the last few weeks. By the 28th of December, though, the war for northern Radonshire was over. Roger's castles of Nucleus, Prestene, Knighton, and Norton had surrendered to Llewellyn through the fear of those siege engines, as we mentioned earlier. Roger, realizing that there was no help coming from the king by this point, and with very little in the way of options, accepted his cousin Llewellyn's offer for free passage through his lines back to England. Roger was a descendant of Llewellyn ap Yorweth, as was, of course, Llewellyn ap Griffith. Without food or hope of relief, dreadfully thinned marcher army tramped back on its frozen path in the middle of winter back to Wigmore Castle. As often happens when you lose a battle, you're not welcomed with open arms, certainly not by the English monarchy. Mortimer and his army were met with cries of treason for having lost. At Wigmore, in his anger and compulsive and venomant anger, Roger plotted his vengeance against all concerned. The sight of the ruined Knefflis castle and much of central Wales, however, were now in the hands of Llewellyn in a little over a month. The defeat left the English with another bloody nose. The Welsh ability to wage war against the marchers was now becoming a serious situation, if it hadn't been already. One that was going to create both opportunity for Henry's English enemies, while continuing to build Llewellyn's reputation with all of those both in Wales and outside of Wales. You can understand why Matthew Paris so often compared Llewellyn to Henry and Edward. He seemingly was able to catch and defeat the English whenever things seemed to edge towards Henry, and he found a way to blow up Henry's gains. The comparisons were not good if you were the English monarchy, obviously. During the summer and autumn of 1262, back in the French holdings before he returned, Henry and Monford were trying to negotiate the return of the baron. It had all come to basically nothing, and the king and the queen returned to England, just in time for the problems with Llewellyn obviously to blow up in their laps. 
Prince Edward, on the other hand, remained in France, and according to the historian Mark Morris, this may have been because Edward was neutered back in England, having lost lands in both Wales and England, and most of his associates having been shoved aside. He was now aimless and appeared to have little interest in politics, at least to this point. This, like the tide of Montfort, would change in a very short order after the Welsh victories. In 1263, as it, the year opened, marcher lords had once again had enough of their king, and as noted earlier, turned to the exiled de Montfort to deal with the king. He was eager to do just that. The king was paranoid that the hostile barons in the march, far from supporting the king, were turning on him, and he began to distrust them, and of course, even Roger Mortimer, who was a staunch ally of the king, felt some of that. Outraged at his losses, tossing blame around, including at Edward, Henry appeared to be calling Edward a shiftless layabout who did not care about the lands that Henry had given him in Wales. He chided him to return home and help him win a war against the Welsh prince. Henry, at this point, had survived an illness thanks to an outbreak in France before he returned home that had killed many within his entourage, but had left him weakened and bitter, and he wanted Edward to come back to England to carry on in his stead and deal with the Welsh. Edward would be more than happy to do just that. However, the increasingly paranoid Henry was being fed rumors from the Bishop of Hereford that seemingly the marcher lords and their vassals were working with Llewellyn rather than for the king, something Henry felt rang true, even if in reality it was a lie, for of course there was little love lost between the various sides. But as we know, even today, perception becomes a person's reality. For King Henry, the marchers were those that had betrayed him. Peter de Montfort and John de Grey were sent to Abergavenny to ascertain the situation on the ground. Their report to the king seemed to say that the Welsh were rebelling on their own and giving homage to Llewellyn, and this was even happening in the so-called marcher strongholds, which of course must have sent his paranoia sky high. Llewellyn moves at this point to take Gwent. Taking the county would put it back into Welsh hands and cut off the Earl of Pembroke from having an overland route to the rest of England. Also, it would have put Glamorgan under threat, an area which had been staunchly in the English hands since the 11th century. De Grey, now in overall command of the resistance to Llewellyn, lent his support to Peter Montfort, who had been trapped in Abergavenny trying to deal with this. The Welsh forces consisted of all the southern princes of Doithbarth and Powys, along with Llewellyn's own steward, Gonroy ap Edninfed, who led the army. The Welsh probed south and swang south of Abergavenny, but were then repulsed when Mortimer, Grey, and Montfort were able to inflict major losses on the Welsh around the 3rd of March in 1263. The Welsh were stumped in their attack and were stunned by the ferocity of the English fight, fleeing into the mountains, leaving some of their booty and some of their resources and some of their men, to be fair, in the attack. And this had left the marcher lords in charge of an important area and kept Llewellyn from his goal of taking Gwent. Henry and Llewellyn bargained in the meantime, trying to create at least a, a new truce of some sort. But 
Henry had to deal with his lords, and many of them wanted their own pound of flesh after everything had gone on, and the marchers weren't in any mood to agree to any negotiated settlement. Either way, they did try and arrange a meeting around the 20th of March, but in the meantime, Edward had returned to England, and at his insistence, discussions with Llewellyn broke off at that point. Edward was put in charge of the Welsh problem, and it appears that he was in no mood to bargain. What may lie behind this was an agreement between Edward and Roger Mortimer. The new allies had no reason to desire a Welsh bargain, and nothing to gain by bargaining at a weakened state. Besides, they just smacked the Welsh around in Abergavenny. At this moment, in a point when Llewellyn suffered a huge setback, his brother, one of his commanders in the field, chose that moment to abandon him and to support the English cause. Unfortunately, we're not sure why David decided to do this, but it presented Edward with another chance to divide Welsh loyalties, obviously with the prince having his brother in his camp and the other brother in prison, to be fair. It kept him safe from those that were looking to overthrow him, but now all of a sudden that put more doubt in the situation. The prince, for his efforts, went through the spring and summer of 1263, putting pressure on Powys Hwenwing, and they had suffered losses to Llewellyn, who then took quite a lot of plunder in that process. This hurt De Lestrange and John Fitzalan, the lord of Clun. But once again, Llewellyn suffered a defeat at the hands of these lords as they came in to deal with him. If Edward was now more firmly convinced to attack Wales, he was no better than his father in executing a plan of attack. In August of 1263, the whole idea and the supposed battle cry came again to nothing. Within that period, Llewellyn captured Disearth and Digani, and by the summer of 1263, the monarchy had once again been distracted away from Wales. As it turned out, Simon de Montfort had returned to England and once again plunged the whole nation into rebellion. Montfort allies attacked the marcher lords loyal to Henry and Edward. The estates of the Bishop of Hereford, who had slandered the lords, were attacked particularly, and at some point in this process, John Fitzalan switched to the Montfort's side, attacking Hereford and taking the bishop's castle. However, he appeared to be fairly easily swayed back into Edward's camp, and by the end of 1263 was loyally at Edward and Mortimer's side. In another strange change of fortunes for Llewellyn, as his brother joined the enemy, his most difficult person to deal with amongst the Welsh native lords ended up turning to him. As it turned out, at this stage, Griffith ap Gwenwynwyn joined forces with Llewellyn. By December 12, 1263, he actually signed a pact with Llewellyn, making him his liege lord. When we look into why this happened, it came over land disputes with the English neighbors, the Corbetts, which the land on the English side of the border had been something that uh, Griffith had claimed and desired, but through negotiations with the Crown and through legal proceedings, he actually lost that ability and was told he was not able to take that land. At the same time, he lost a lot of his English allies in that particular dispute, and Griffith found himself that he'd lost the whole of his 
built-up resistance, meaning that he had little else he could do. Again, this caused problems for Henry and created unnecessary problems in his Welsh issues because here was a former staunch ally now falling into Llewellyn's camp, no matter for how long that might be. In another more politically fortunate move for Llewellyn, Montford found that both of them needed each other. Simon wanted to win his war to control Edward and Henry, and Llewellyn wanted peace and a recognition of his right to rule. Both of these were now pushed together. Whether Llewellyn ever found out what Henry really thought about him, as we had mentioned before, he, this was at best speculation, but the desire to finally deal with the issue by hook or by crook forced him to come to someone's table. At this point, Monford needed allies, and a powerful Welsh prince seemed to have the strategic ability to tie up those who followed the king. If the loss of David hurt Llewellyn, and it did, then the additions of Monford and Griffith ap Gwynwynwyn at least made up for that loss and made it more palatable to deal with. The autumn of 1263 saw a united force coming, as the Chronicle put it. Some of the earls and the Welsh rose up against Edward and the foreigners. The idea of who the foreigners are in this case is muddled, as it seems to be a combination of the Plantagenets and their French allies and the English rather than just a French army. Of course, many of the Marcher lords themselves had Welsh bloodlines at this point, so one might be forgiven for thinking of them as natives under Welsh perception. Similar to how Robert the Bruce, a descendant of Normans, became the king the Scots most revered. Of course, it's noted at this stage that in that very chronicle, there was no mention made of Henry. Thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting the Welsh History Podcast. If you'd like to share any comments or concerns, you can do so at welshhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can contact us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash welshhistorypodcast or on Twitter at twitter.com at welshhistorypod. Uh, until next time, everyone, take care, have a great day, and we'll talk to you later. Bye! This has been a Distractions Media production, and for everything we do, check out distractionsmedia.com. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.